0: Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hey there, Mind Valley listeners. I'm recording here in Tbilisi, Georgia. If you've never heard of Tbilisi, Georgia, you got to come visit. It's a beautiful, incredible, city that's about 1,600 years old in a country called Georgia that is just south of Russia. I'm having an incredible time over here. We are here running a Valley event in the Russian language. We have a huge, huge, huge following in Russia, Ukraine, and other Russian-speaking countries, and it's just been an absolute delight. So in this particular podcast that I'm bringing you, I'm actually sharing a talk by a powerful speaker, he is the man who was brought onto the Marvel film Doctor Strange to advise. Get this, Benedict Cumberbatch on Eastern philosophy, and his name is Gelong Thubten. And you definitely want to be listening to this particular podcast episode here at Nine Valley. So let me tell you a little bit about Thubten. Thubten is a British monk, and growing up in England, he decided that he wanted to escape the world and go within, and so get this, he moved to a remote Scottish island and spent four years in silence in a monastery, going deep into Eastern philosophy, Buddhist practices, and I guess other things that monks do. Now, Thupton emerged out of that experience as one of the wisest, most incredible souls I've ever met in my life. And every time we put him on stage, he is a remarkable hit. I first put Thupton on stage at Mine Valley University in Barcelona, and he was one of my top 10 best-rated speakers. So in this particular talk, Thuptim is going to share some light on what meditation is really, really, truly about. And before I tell you some of the wisdom he's going to share, let me just read you a couple of comments from people who have actually watched this talk. Ivanya said, a few minutes into this talk, I got the answer I needed. To not look for, not need for some kind of happening after meditation. I love this. Viv said, love this. Watched it over and over again. Every time I watch, I get a different understanding. And because of this and other ideas on forgiveness from Mind Valley, I'm practicing meditation, compassion and forgiveness for myself and for others. So I wanted to share that feedback from our fellow listeners. So you know what to expect. We had first released this as a video on Mind Valley Talks, our YouTube channel. And now. I'm releasing the audio version of this here in this podcast. So get ready for a blissed out session to go deep into what meditation is really about. Tukton's going to share with you why it's nearly impossible to clear your mind during meditation. You're going to learn about how to overcome discomfort and how to sink into the bliss and how to not get addicted to meditation. You're going to learn how to take your meditation practice and basically bring in elements that are thought in monasteries around the world so that as we go through life, we get to go through the, the regular stresses and anxieties and pressures of modern life with the grace of a monk. And this is what Thupten's gonna be talking about. And it's a lot easier than you think. Now, as a special bonus, after this podcast, I'm actually gonna give you a link where you can get and download the meditation that Thupten took us all through at Mindvalley University in Barcelona. But for now, let's listen to Gelong Thupten. And this is the Mind Valley Podcast.
1: My talk is about meditation. My talk is about pain. And my talk is about compassion. So I want to tie together these three areas. I do quite a lot of courses. I give a lot of classes and courses in meditation. And one of the things I've noticed, which I'm sure you've noticed too, is that many people have a view about meditation that it's like shutting yourself down. A lot of people struggle when they meditate because they try to clear their mind. And that phrase, clear your mind is sort of thrown around a lot. Clear your mind, clear your mind, clear your mind. And of course, you're sitting there trying to clear the mind and the mind is screaming. And so people are struggling to clear their mind, to switch off their thoughts, to, I think people, are struggling because the whole concept is not helpful. Trying to go into a blank state is more like trying to become unconscious. And so I think meditation has nothing to do with clearing the mind. It has nothing to do with switching off. It's about switching on. It's about waking up. And so the thoughts and the emotions, and particularly our pain, are very powerful catalysts in the practice if you can learn how to work with them in a creative way. So when we talk about meditation and we talk about consciousness and we talk about expanding our consciousness, which is obviously the theme here, what we're talking about is realizing that our mind is bigger than our thoughts. And some of the metaphors used for this in the texts, the ancient texts on meditation, are metaphors such as the sky or the ocean, Okay, so imagine you're flying in an aeroplane, and the aeroplane is coming down to land. You look out of the window, and it's all blue sky. And then you look down below you, and there's this blanket of clouds. It's like cotton wool, and it looks very solid. The plane is coming down to land. Of course, we know that the plane is going to come down through the clouds and land. But if you didn't know that, maybe if you are a small child or somebody who just doesn't know how these things work, you might think that the plane is going to crash into the clouds because they look very solid. So in the metaphor, obviously, the sky is our mind, the clouds are our thoughts and emotions. And this is what happens to us, is that when we are experiencing our thoughts and emotions, especially if they're difficult, painful thoughts and emotions, we tense up because we think we're going to crash. But of course, if you understand that your mind is just like that sky and the aeroplane is your awareness and you're able to just move through those thoughts and emotions without grabbing onto them and without pushing them away, then that's meditation. Another example is the ocean. The ocean has its natural flow, the waves. The waves are coming, the waves are going. The waves aren't separate from the ocean. They're just the natural expression of the ocean. So because of that non-separation, the ocean doesn't need to push away its waves or grab onto its waves. The ocean has no problem with its waves. So similarly, the mind doesn't need to have any problem with its thoughts and emotions if it learns just to accept. So I want to talk about a very simple meditation technique, which I'm sure you've all practiced, but I want to talk about it in this context. And that's when we meditate by focusing on our own breathing. I mean, that's a very basic, very classical meditation technique. And I want to talk about how this helps us to enhance our awareness. So, when we're focusing on our breathing, we all know how quickly the plan fails because we sit down with the plan that we're going to meditate and we're going to focus on our breathing. And then within a few seconds, we're thinking about what's for lunch or the mind is you know, going here and going there. That is where the training now kicks in, because here we now have the chance to notice that our mind got lost and bring our attention back to the breathing. So we're not trying to remove the thoughts, we're just bouncing back to the present moment. So we're just leaving the thought alone. We're not blocking it, we're not chasing it, we're just letting it be and returning. So every time we return to the breath, we're strengthening our awareness. We're building our relationship with our awareness. We are being that awareness. So we're being the sky instead of the clouds. And we do that again and again and again. And obviously we're going to get stronger at it and more able to come back to the present moment more swiftly. But we're not looking for anything. We're not searching for anything. So this is often the problem, is that we're searching. So myself, I became a monk 24 years ago, I was 21. I was incredibly tormented, tormented by stress, tormented by unhappiness, pain, physical pain, emotional pain. And I came to the monastery to learn meditation to get rid of my pain. And what happened was I started to become kind of addicted to meditation. I was meditating in that sort of addictive way and I was doing all these sessions of meditation, and I started to get more and more depressed. I started to feel this incredible heaviness in my heart area, like a kind of sinking feeling, like a disappointment, depression. And I went to my teacher, a Tibetan Lama, and I said, (laughs) you know, I'm doing all this stuff and it's making me depressed. And he said, no, it's not making you depressed, you're meditating like somebody who's taking drugs you're looking for a high, you're looking for bliss, you're searching, you're pushing, you're trying to feel something. And I realized he was right, and this completely changed my attitude to meditation, because I started to realize that in our life, we're always searching something, and our culture is very much a culture of exaggeration of the senses. Feel good, feel high, feel buzzy, get something kind of ramping up our senses. The media that we all view, the internet, the movies, it's all very snappy, very kind of exciting. So we want that lift. Even the food we eat is sort of laced with e-numbers and additives and buzzy chemicals to make us feel something. So then we start meditating, and the same thing happens. We're looking for that feeling. We're looking for an experience. And the problem with that, I find, is that when we're searching for that experience... We're telling ourselves we don't have it. So at the same time as looking for happiness and looking to feel good, we're creating a deficiency. We're creating a sense of lack, a feeling that we don't have it. So in a way, we're denigrating, we're denigrating our present experience by saying happiness is over there. And that's how we've lived. That's how we've lived in our society. Happiness is over there. If you're thin enough, rich enough, beautiful enough, whatever enough, then you'll be happy. So then we meditate and we say, if I'm blissed enough, if I'm high enough, if I'm, then I'll be happy. So the same cycle starts up again. I think if we learn to let go of that desire and discover that happiness and joy are in this moment now, then we can start to progress. I mean, something else I can share with you from my own story is... After being a monk for 12 years, I went into retreat. In our tradition, we do these really sort of extreme retreats of four years, where you're kind of locked away for four years. There's no interaction with the outside world. There's no computers, no news, nothing. And you're just in retreat for four years. We were on a Scottish island, so you can't even (laughs) get off the island. And there's a small courtyard where you can walk for fresh air, but there's a wall around it and you can't go out. It's voluntary, okay? It's not like you're... (laughs) (laughs) You heard I worked in prisons. It's not that kind of thing. (laughs) So, I spent the first two years in tears. I spent the first two years of that retreat incredibly depressed. And what happened when I went into the retreat was I had a lot of arrogance. Because I'd been a monk for 12 years, I was kind of a bit more senior than the other people in retreat, I thought, you know, I'll be fine. There was a kind of pride there, a kind of arrogance... I'll do this. I'm okay. And it crashed. I crashed into very, very severe depression and anxiety. And I remember being unable to even meditate. I remember feeling like I was falling through space with nothing to hold me. And it was such a bizarre combination of lying at the bottom of a well and also extreme anxiety. And the overriding sensation was like a knife twisting here in my heart. And I hated it, and I cried, and I was pushing, pushing it away. I and mean, who would want to feel like that? Of course you're pushing it away. And I really hit rock bottom. And of course when you hit rock bottom, the only way is up. So something changed in the last half of the retreat, where I started to learn how to make friends with that feeling. It was a massive breakthrough for me, because I learned how to, instead of push away that feeling, I learned how to move closer to it. And almost that you expand your awareness, you expand your awareness around the feeling and you completely embrace it. You're opening, you're melting into that feeling. And the key is you have to drop the storyline, because there was a story with the feeling, there was my past, there was this happened, that happened. Those are the storylines that we tell ourselves which actually distract us from the essence of what is going on in this moment. So when I learned how to not get caught in the story and instead relate with compassion to the feeling, it started to change. It started to melt into a feeling of love. And the practice is unconditional kindness. The practice is unconditional love. So you're becoming one with your feeling. Until that point, there's always two things. There's the difficult feeling and there's me being bothered by it. There's the subject and object. I am bothered by that. If you become one with it, who's bothering who? How can it hurt you if you are it, and it is you, if there's a oneness? And that's what compassion is. Compassion is oneness. I don't like the word compassion. We don't have a word in English that really sums up what is expressed in the teachings on meditation. We use the word compassion, but it's not enough because it sounds like a separation. I am looking down on you, you are sad, I am feeling sorry for you. That's not it. It's oneness. And it's trained through this interaction with your own mind, this interaction of non-separation, and learning that the discomfort that we experience is the key to happiness and the key to compassion. So this feeling started to shift And the second half of my retreat was completely opposite to the first half. The first half of my retreat, the overriding image was I felt like I was inside a metal box, inside a metal ball with spikes on the inside, digging into me. And any move I made, mentally or physically, the ball would roll and the spikes would dig into me. The second half of the retreat was like sinking into a comfortable bed, you are in the comfort of your own mind because you start to make friends with yourself. So this was enormously helpful for me and something I'm still learning about and still trying to share with others around how to make peace with your mind. Going back to my initial point, when we're trying to clear our mind, that's like annihilation. That's a very aggressive, sort of violent thing to do to try and empty your mind. And then when you're trying to push for a bliss or a high or a special feeling, again, that's a very aggressive... To me, it feels very aggressive because I'm telling myself, this is boring, this is... I don't like this, I want to go over there. So to me, that's a kind of aggression. And then to go back to what I was saying about this very simple technique of when you're focusing on your breathing, your mind wanders... And then there's a moment where you notice your mind has wandered. How many of you get tense when that happens? That's totally normal, isn't it? We feel like a failure. The mind wandered, and we think, oh, I've blown it. And we kind of pull it back. So that's the kind of aggression, again. I would suggest a different approach. I would suggest that when your mind wanders, you realize that that is what aids you in coming back to the breath. So your thoughts are your friend, not your enemy. They're like weights in a gym. If you go to the gym, you don't want to lift feathers, you want to lift weights. (laughs) So if your mind is wandering a lot, that's good, because it gives you a chance to return. And that moment of recognition that your mind has got lost, that moment is key. For many people, that's a moment of failure. Like I asked you, do you get tense? That's like you failed. But if you can learn to see that moment as a moment of success because you were lost and now you're found, and you're back in the conscious awareness, then you're making peace with your thoughts. This is self-forgiveness. This is self-acceptance. This is compassion. And only through resolving that internal conflict can we become a more compassionate person in our external world. So I think it's very much about the journey of friendship, friendship with your mind, It's about compassion. And now I want to say a few more things about compassion. I think that there's a lot of people who meditate understandably to reduce their stress. That's fine. That's okay. But there comes a point where you want to kind of go further than that. There comes a point where it's kind of beyond just relaxing. And I think that point is where you start thinking about compassion and the idea that your practice of meditation is an act of compassion and you are practicing in order to benefit others, not just yourself. And this is how you expand your practice. You know how when we do a session of meditation, maybe, I don't know, five minutes, ten minutes, and our mind is just wandering the whole time and we finish our ten minutes and we think, what was that about? Was it worth it? It feels like a drop in the ocean, doesn't it? But if you motivate that practice as compassion, you're doing it for compassion, then you're taking that drop and you're putting it in the ocean. The drop in the ocean becomes the ocean. It becomes limitless. What is the ocean? The ocean is simply the total of all the drops. So when we do our meditation, and we start each session by creating a very profound intention of compassion we want to benefit all beings, and we're meditating out of love for all beings. And then at the end of the session, having a moment of dedicating the practice to all beings, a moment where you think, I give this to all beings. What you've done is you've turned your five- or ten-minute meditation into a compassion practice. And in one of the Buddhist texts, it says, if you have a drop of water and it's just lying on the palm of your hand, and you just leave it there, the drop of water just dries up. If you want to make that drop of water last forever, you take that drop and you put it in the ocean, and it becomes part of the ocean. So similarly with our practice, if our practice of meditation is very self-motivated, it's like the drop of water on the hand, it just dries up. If it's compassion-motivated, it's like putting the drop of water in the ocean, it becomes limitless. What do I mean by self-motivated practice? I mean when we're just trying to get something out of it for ourselves, because the problem there is that the self is insatiable. It's like working for a boss who's never happy with anything you do. Whatever you do, the boss says, that's not good enough. I want more. You didn't do it right. The nagging voice of our ego is constantly telling us, you've got to be better, you've got to be bigger, you've got to be stronger, you've got to be more this, more that... Because the mechanism of self is all around pushing for something and pushing away something. Wanting more, wanting to get away from something else, grasping after pleasure, pushing away discomfort. And this is like running on a wheel. I'm Like a hamster on a wheel. You know, running, 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 but not moving. Running towards pleasure, running away from pain. That's the sort of mechanics of ego. And so when that becomes the energy of our meditation practice, The same problem happens. The meditation practice actually feels like a drop of water that's just dried up. There's no juice. You know, it's just dry. And the practice becomes very unsatisfying. You could experience what I experienced, where I was having that sort of heaviness in my heart because I was feeling I wasn't getting anything from it. This kind of ego-based practice. Compassion-based practice is where you're practicing for the benefit of others, which includes you. I'm not saying you're just this doormat and you're going to become this kind of martyr and help everybody and you're going to be miserable. I don't mean that. Compassion is incredibly enriching. And according to Buddhist philosophy, compassion is the natural state of our mind. Compassion is the natural state of our mind. And I'm very interested in the links between Buddhism and neuroscience. And when we talk with neuroscientists, they talk about the natural chemistry of the body, which a baby experiences, oxytocin. Oxytocin is the chemical that a baby experiences when the mother and child, when she's breastfeeding the child, mother and baby go into a state of oxytocin. This is our sort of default state, chemically. Oxytocin is the chemistry of love, the chemistry of unconditional love. When it's love that needs something like a validation, it's more like dopamine, the druggy love. When it's a love that's expanded and doesn't want anything in return, it's oxytocin. So that, to me, suggests that we are hardwired for love on a chemical level. In Buddhist philosophy, it's been talked about for centuries, but it's exciting to see how science is catching up with Buddhism. 2,500 years, a bit late, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So, according to this knowledge... Compassion is our natural state. So, the quality of our consciousness is love. The nature of our consciousness is love, unconditional love. Not love that needs validation, but unconditional love. So, if we are meditating with that in mind and we're having that sense of compassionate giving in our practice, then we're on the right track. And as I said earlier, how you relate to your own discomfort is the key. It is absolutely the key. And what I try to work with myself and what I try to share with others is those tiny moments, those tiny moments of discomfort throughout the day. I find those very interesting, those tiny moments of physical and emotional discomfort. That's the practice. So when you're standing in a queue or when you're stuck in traffic, Even when you're in like the hotel here and you're pressing the button at the lift, the elevator, and you're waiting for the lift, there's a moment of waiting, isn't there? There's a moment where the body tenses up, when's the lift going to come? We see all these moments of waiting, being stuck, stuck in traffic, standing in a queue, whatever. We see these as moments of discomfort, moments of time stolen. For a meditator, these are moments of time given, Because if you can learn how to, in that moment, completely surrender, you're reprogramming your brain, you're reprogramming your heart, you're learning to meet discomfort as a friend. So it doesn't have to be a big, huge thing like sitting in a four-year retreat and having a knife twisting in your heart like I was describing. It can be a very subtle moment during the day where you feel that discomfort, and instead of seeking another something to get rid of it, You meet it with love. You meet it with acceptance. These tiny micro sensations are very exciting when you learn how to work with them. Micro sensations in the body. Micro sensations of tension in your shoulders, in your belly, in your hands. Don't even try to relax them, because trying to relax is another kind of aggression. I'm tense, I need to relax. What I mean is you just meet it with awareness. This whole thing is around awareness. This whole thing is around... Conscious awareness, being the sky instead of the clouds. The sky encompasses the clouds. So, normally, when we have sensations of tension in our body, we push them away, we hate them. But if you can relax with them and just be compassionate and be in that moment with awareness, you're making friends with reality. This is how to increase joy without looking for joy. It's a paradox. You know how people fall in love when they stop looking for Mrs. Right or Mr. Right? It's the same with meditation. One of my teachers once said, we are mentally very rich when we desire nothing. We are mentally very rich when we desire nothing. I think that's a very powerful statement. We are mentally very rich when we desire nothing. So what I'm saying here is that if you're trying to push yourself into a state of joy, you're just focusing on the absence of joy you're focusing on lack. If, on the other hand, you meet pain with joy, you're programming yourself, you're teaching yourself that you can be present, and in this moment everything is there, everything you always wanted is there. And what this exercise does is a very clever thing, you know, the exercise of learning to be mindful or aware or present in traffic jams or queues or when your phone slows down, any of these kind of waiting situations. It's very clever, because next time you're stuck in traffic, you're going to think, oh, great, I can try that thing now. I can do that thing I learned from that monk. (laughs) I'm going to do it. So you're almost saying, bring it on. Bring on the pain, because this is my training. So then your relationships change. That person you find uncomfortable becomes your friend. Because instead of mentally shutting down and feeling, oh, this pain, I wanted to go away, you're opening to it. Your consciousness is expanding to just be with what is and not push anything away. So you have a kind of oneness, like a unity. And that means anytime anything goes wrong in your life you could kind of get excited about it. You could think, I'm going to rewire my neurons. I'm going to change my brain chemistry. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because normally we want to feel good, but feeling bad doesn't have to be feeling bad. It's a subjective experience. It's a matter of opinion. You know, a lot of people like to close their eyes when they meditate. I do the opposite. I keep my eyes open. That's how I was taught. And the reason for that is... It's about being in this moment rather than
0: shutting down this moment or changing this moment. I hope you enjoyed that talk by Gelong Thubten. By the way, for those of you who are curious, Gelong is a title. Thubten is the man's name. Gelong is a title of honor. It's a title of respect that one would give a mock of Thubten's practice. Now, those of you who would like to experience a meditation and be guided by Thupten, we don't want to add it to the podcast because God knows some of you might be driving as you're listening to this. And the last thing I want to do is ask you to close your eyes. So when you're in a safe space, what I want you to do is to go to go.mindvalley.com forward slash podcast 42, P-O-D-C-A-S-D 42, the number is 42. And you'll be able to download a meditation from Thupton that you can practice at home today. Have fun, guys. And if you enjoyed this particular episode, go ahead and leave a review. And in the review, mention Thugton. I know that our authors love it when they see their name in a review and they hear how they got to change your lives. And of course, if you know anyone who would benefit from this, please share this with your friends. Thank you all for being our listeners. forward slash now to get started.